Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 325. We're recording on Wednesday, August 7th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. I'm here with Sharifa Williams while Jeff is out, and we are coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello, Sharifa. Hello. I'm very glad to be here. Um, I'm glad to have you here, too. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I love talking about I feel like I talk about science fiction and fantasy news so much, so it feels like a totally different world, even though I literally look at book news all day, every day. <laughs> so I'm glad and I get to talk about it with my mouth words. <laughs> yes, use your mouth words. I'm so glad that we get to spend this time together. We just got to hang out in Portland last week Yes, um, while we had executive team meetings there and got to catch up with everyone, but it's always nice to have you here. Yeah, we didn't get to make hip hop happen, but we're <sighs> talking today. <laughs> yes. And that's yeah, something. In, it's something. It's definitely not as exciting as taking a hip hop dance class <laughs> would have been. <laughs> it's probably better for my sense of pride, though. <laughs> <laughs> I can confirm that I have had some pride less moments in those classes. So, yeah. Well, dignity <laughs> is overrated. It really is. Um, before we get into the week's news, I just want to thank everybody who hung out with us last week while we were, while Jeff and I were breaking down the Da Vinci Code. We had a lot of fun with that episode. And if you haven't listened yet, go back, episode 324. We reread and then rewatched the Da Vinci Code and had ourselves a book nerd movie hour. I think more shows like that are going to come. So if you have any feedback, let us know, podcast at bookriot.com. Uh, and any ideas about book movie combos that you would like to see us explore there. We had a really good time. It's going to be hard to top the fun of a Robert Langdon caper. Like we really started strong. <laughs> that <laughs> sounds to... like so your cup of tea. I, I have to listen to this. That sounds delightful. It was delightful. You know, we never, Jeff and I never get to record in person because of living on opposite coasts. And yeah. the couple of times that we have recorded in the same room with each other in the past have been like hilariously awkward because we were like in his apartment sharing one microphone and it was oh really God. hot and we were sweating, <laughs> like basically sitting, like basically sitting on each other's laps. Was like, this is oh, too much. Horrible. So we got, we did this one at his kitchen table. We had separate microphones. Like we had a little personal space, <laughs> but it was nice too. It was really nice to hang out and do that um, and get to like see each other's faces while we were being ridiculous, making gestures about Robert Langdon. Oh, you got to geek out in person. That's beautiful. Yeah. Geeking out in person is the best. <laughs> uh, and talking about Robert Langdon's sexual prowess or lack thereof and watching Jeff <laughs> oh turn various goodness. shades of red <gasps> is just oh so goodness. satisfying. <laughs> Oh, wow. I wish I was in the room just recording that moment. <laughs> when, when we planned the show, we were on a call and he was like, you know, we're going to have to talk about this. And I just am unprepared. I was like, it's going to be so great. 
Were you getting secret delight out of mentioning all of those things and oh, seeing him squirm? Always. <laughs> always. Poor it's Jeff. very it's wonderful. Hi Jeff. Oh, boy. We say all of this in love. Um speaking of love and the week's biggest news for publishing and sad news certainly for this podcast, uh Tony Morrison, scion of not just American letters, of letters, period, um, passed away earlier this week at the age of 88. She was the first black woman and remains the only black woman to have won the Nobel Prize in Literature, which she won in 1993. Author of 11 novels, children's books, essay collections, criticism, giver of wonderful talks, um, and that rare combination of both critically successful and commercially successful. Her books were beloved. She was an Oprah pick um, back in the day, a longtime faculty member at Princeton, published her first novel, The Bluest Eye, in her late 30s while she was working as an editor at Random House and published the subsequent next couple of novels also while still working, which is remarkable for any novelist, but especially when you take in these books. I don't mm-hmm. think we can overstate the impact that she had on American literature. Like she is the great American novelist. And I've been trying, like there's, you know, no one is going to do a sufficient job eulogizing her. I think um, it's impossible to really try to capture what she did what what a gift her work was, um, but in addressing race and class and gender and color in the ways that she did in the times that she did, she was doing intersectionalism before we had that word for it, and she was I think planting a flag in an artist's right to tell a story directly to her community, directly to a black audience, without regard for what white readers or like, you know, the publishing world in general would take from it. And that was so bold and brave and clearly it paid off, but we're all the better for it. How did you, I know we've, we've talked a little bit about our respective experiences with Toni Morrison's work. Um, and so I'll kick it to you now, Sharifa, for how did you yeah. come to her and, and what are some of your experiences with her? Yeah, we were talking about this a little yesterday and I actually spent a lot of yesterday thinking about this and I posted a long caption on my Instagram about it because I was like, you know, trying to th- to figure out my feelings about it all day for myself because mm-hmm. I've definitely had like a complicated relationship with Toni Morrison's work. Uh, I, as I was telling you yesterday, we were, we read the bluest eye in high school and that book just really tore me apart. Yeah. So I struggled and there were, there weren't a lot of black kids at my school, like not by a long shot. So I felt really uncomfortable and overexposed mm-hmm. in that situation And there's this experience, like, I don't think I'm alone in having where in school, college, or high school students discuss works of literature about the black struggle, and it's hard not to feel like they're talking about and around you, and it's hard not to feel a certain way. 
about their analyses or whatever they say about the black experience where, you know, there are situations where books that use the N-word are read aloud by white students and you flinch like it's this physical thing. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain experience that comes with being like only the only or one of few black students in the mostly white settings of many classrooms where black literature and history are being dissected. And as you said, you know, Toni Morrison wrote for black people. So there's all sorts of weirdness there. And it feels like almost like a stranger's picking at your raw wound sometimes in those situations. So every time I encounter these works and histories, they, they were taught by white men as well. And when I read The Bluest Eye, when I first encountered Toni Morrison's work, I felt like I wasn't, now in retrospect as an adult looking back on that situation, like there was a lot of me blaming myself for not understanding it um, or not knowing how to react appropriately to it. But I feel like I kind of wasn't given the tools I needed to approach the work at that age. And I was sorting myself out and having a hard time of it. And I kind of also felt fatigue about the fact that, you know, every story I'd read about people who looked like me were stories of intense and brutal Mm. suffering, which is a thing that's been talked about, um, you know, in in children's literature as well. But I think it extends. um, And it was undeniable, even as the bluest eye tore me up inside. (laughs) that Toni Morrison was a singular storyteller. It wouldn't have affected me that much if she hadn't been. It just, you know, her her words reach down into your soul and grab it. But I ended up avoiding her books afterwards because I didn't think I could handle them emotionally. Like, I was that sort of person. I was a bit of a depressive person. I had a really terrible self-esteem when I approached her work for the first time and I had to sort of check what I was inputting into my brain all the time. But every time Morrison's name came up after that into adulthood, I felt like this strong sense of guilt. And that's kind of what I was feeling yesterday when I heard about her death. Um, Strong feelings of sorrow, strong feelings of guilt. Um, Because reading her felt as necessary as it felt frightening. So Mm. I had been quietly buying her books for when I was ready very recently. um, And I can't remember what made me start, but I I was in an indie bookstore in Belmont Books in Portland a few months ago, and I saw one of her books. I saw The Bluest Eye on the shelf. And I remembered the experience, and I sort of hesitantly picked it up and thought, you know, maybe maybe it's time to read this again. Maybe it's time to get back into it and see how I feel. So when we lost her yesterday, or on the 5th actually, but found out about it yesterday, I felt this kind of overwhelming and messy flood of emotions because, you know, we lost this incredible person, and... That was enough to make a person grieve, but I also felt like kind of the estranged relative who thought she had all the time in the world to reconnect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt remorse and I felt guilt that, you know, I, as a black person, had only read The Bluest Eye and had had a reaction that was the opposite of rushing to read every title in her catalog. Um, and the foundations of those feelings and of the perceived or real onus of a black person to give themselves or their kids a certain kind of education in their own history is a discussion for another time. But Toni Morrison's death compelled me to drop everything and remake my reading experience with her work. Um, so I ended up reading Sula yesterday in one evening. 
Um, and Toni Morrison has this way of transporting you to a place and writing characters who feel as real as your next door neighbor or your cousins. Um, and I think that's at least part of why she was so successful at bringing home stories about people in communities, black people. Um, she was writing to black people. She was writing for black people, but it resonated with readers who weren't black. It resonated with a lot of people. It made them see black people. Um, and I read the foreword before I actually started reading Sula. I read the foreword up until the part where she starts talking about the act of writing Sula and her thoughts as she wrote the story because mm-hmm. I didn't want to spoil anything for myself. Um, and there's this crystal clarity to her social commentary and her commentary about what it means to be a black person writing for black people and how people see black people who are doing that, um, that really, it, it almost felt like this was a thing I needed to see and to hear as I approached her work again as an adult, because I understand all of those things so much more than I ever could have as a high school student. Um, and it, she just gets right to the point and it resonates, her words resonate on such a deep level. And it made me think that I'd pick up her essay collection, The Source of Self-Regard, Ooh. next. Because mm-hmm. I'm just like, there's, you know, there's a reason people are quoting her. There's a reason you're seeing all these quotes flying around. Like, it resonates with people. Um, and these days, I guess it hits me a little harder when we lose people like Toni Morrison. People who are a voice for the marginalized. It's a combination of feeling like we need all of our people right now and also saying that, you know, that saying all of our heroes are dead. And I feel like Mm -hmm. I've been repeating that a lot lately. And I don't, you know, I'm getting older and I'm seeing a lot of people who did amazing things for, you know, people in the black community, people in all sorts of marginalized community passing on. Um, But Morrison spent her life writing for black people, pushing back against the status quo of white publishing and white discourse, saying other people live on this planet. Other stories exist. They need to be told and you can't ignore us. You can't forget what you've done to us. And you can't downplay our destruction or our resilience or our survival Mm -hmm. anymore. And we have a new generation of writers and activists. And Morrison called for people to, you know, stand up and stand for something to do the work of uplifting people who've been pushed down she was a great speaker. She was a great thinker. And, you know, I, I've been reading all of these quotes that are on Instagram and her words resonate with me and with people, even as somebody who hasn't approached her work again until now. Like, I, I couldn't dismiss the feeling of she completely gets it and she's this sort of key to unlocking understanding in other people and inspiring me and them and everyone to do and be better. And I think that's just such a powerful legacy. So, Yeah, there's something really rare and magical about being seen, feeling like that you've been seen by a writer. And I think Toni Morrison did that for Black readers, but also captures so much about the broad human experience that she reached everyone else Yeah. also. Um, I have to say, and we talked about this offline, but I just think it merits, like there's enough teachers listening to this podcast. What a failure 
of your teachers to both you and to Toni Morrison's work um, for that to have happened with the bluest eye. And I think like, I think that book ends up on syllabi in high schools because it's the shortest one or it's about, well, maybe it's the shortest. It and Sula are the shortest ones. It's the first one. There are children characters. Maybe it seems most accessible, but like there's no, there's no easy Toni Morrison book. Like they're all hard. Um, Jeff and I have talked before about how, like, if you're reading a Toni Morrison book and you're confident all the way through it that you know what's going on, yeah. then, something, like, <laughs> then something has gone wrong. Um, for sure. I just, I just really don't think that teenagers are ready for the conversations in the way that she has them. There's a lot of groundwork to be laid, especially white educators putting this book in front of classrooms with students of various races or where people of color are the minority in the classroom. There's, there's so much like care that needs to be taken. And I'm very sorry that that happened and glad that you and Tony are on a healing path. Yes. It's a beautiful thing. (laughs) I'm so excited to get into more of her books now that I've read Sula. It's beautiful. Um, but what was your your experience oh, was so different. It was. It was so different. So um, I minored in English in college. And the last thing you had to do as a senior was take a capstone course that was a semester-long seminar in one writer's work. And I just got lucky that my final semester of senior year, the two choices were either Graham Greene or Toni Morrison. <laughs> and I had read Sula in a previous class and loved it. Um, and the woman teaching the Toni Morrison seminar, her name is Brooks Busan, and she still teaches at Loyola University in Chicago, um, is a Morrison scholar and a scholar of feminist literature. She's also written a lot about Margaret Atwood. Um, so I signed up for that. And I did not know really what I was getting into because Sula both is and is not representative of the rest of the Morrison catalog. At that time, there were seven books. And we read all seven of the novels over the course of the semester. We had about two weeks per book. We read them in order and unpacked them. And it was like the most satisfying experience of my academic life to the point that I was like, why have I majored in psychology? What am I doing? (laughs) Um, It was really remarkable. And like Chicago is such a diverse and interesting city and Loyola is a diverse and interesting school. Like if I had encountered this, one of these books as a 16 year old in the suburbs of Kansas, where my high school had like probably fewer than a dozen black people, that experience would have been really different. But even as a 22 year old, like what I thought I got from those at the time, like it was all very real, but then several years ago, I think back in 2012. So I took that course in 2005 and then in 2012, we were preparing for Toni Morrison day on book riot in honor of the publication of yes. home. And I spent a couple of months before that rereading all the books um, in order again and revisiting and going back with my, I was in my late twenties at that time, like going back with fresh eyes was such a richer experience. Um, And I'm sure that if I did it now, I would see things and understand things that I missed at the time. Like that's one of the amazing things about, I think I've read Sula seven times now and there's always something new there um, that evolves, that evolves with you as you evolve 
as a reader. Um, really remarkable. Sula is my favorite. Um, so I'm glad that you started there too. And I think if you're listening to this show and you're, you want to read Toni Morrison and you're not sure where to jump in, I would start with Sula, honestly, over the bluest eye. Don't start with beloved. It's very difficult in many ways. Um, and I also love paradise, which is sort of the end of her beloved jazz paradise. Those three sort of stand as a trilogy or they're thought of critically as a trilogy. The characters and stories are unconnected, but they live together. Um, and paradise is about a community of women, um, living in an unconventional situation. And Sula looks at women's choices and their lives and the complexity of women's friendships. And I find Morrison at her most compelling in that zone. Um, but it's all, man, it's all so good. It's so good. I think I might do the trying to read it. Um, well, maybe trying to read it in order just to see other than getting the essays next, just because, but that's sort of Mm. something like I, I'm the sort of person who will get a book of essays and then read them, um, you know, intermittently in between other books I'm reading, just an essay at a time, sort of. So I think it's a good, I could double up on my Morrison if I wanted. (laughs) You could have like a morning devotional time with Toni Morrison. (laughs) Oh, that sounds like the perfect idea. I might steal that. (laughs) Oh, I was, I've been lucky enough to see her speak twice and there is no more like sacred literary experience than Toni Morrison taking you to church. Oh, wow. I think I remember one of those times when you posted about it. I was I'm like, sure I wow, did. This must have been like the most <laughs> magical moment. Oh, I think it was the tour for home. Maybe that seems like the right timeline about six years ago. Um, Jeff oh, yeah. and I and Jen, when Jen still lived in New York, the three of us went to see her at an event at a Barnes and Noble there when the book was coming out. And I had, I don't usually get starstruck. And I think I've told this story on the show before, but I had myself like ready to be like, <laughs> thank you so much for your work. It has meant so much to me. You're amazing. And I, I like got up there and was just like, thank you. Which probably happens to her a hundred times a day at a book signing. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, I would be so intimidated, (laughs) like beyond belief. I don't know. I don't think, I think you're right. I feel like more people than not probably just walk up to her and start blubbering. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Like, I guess I'm glad I didn't cry on her. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good, that's, that is good. You're probably ahead of a lot of people there. (laughs) Uh, Reading through the internet yesterday, people sharing reflections of her. One of the common themes that I saw that I really loved seeing was people who had interviewed her talking about that experience of sharing space with her and what her presence was like. Um, Roxanne Gay had a lovely story about her on Twitter and Pam Houston shared a story on Facebook about like the one time that she had ever met Toni Morrison was when I think for either the Oprah show or the Oprah magazine, she got the assignment to go interview Toni Morrison. It was when love was coming out. So she had read all the books and she had read love multiple times. And then she decided not to prepare any questions in advance because she just wanted to like be with Toni Morrison and see what would happen. But being in the cat, right. That's like so brave. It's risky, but yes, very brave. (laughs) So she's recounting getting in the cab and then being like, what have I done? Like, it's too late now. But like, what was I thinking? I'm on my way to Toni Morrison's house and 
I don't have questions prepared. And of course, like it was great and lovely and they laughed and Toni Morrison was full of wisdom and everyone learned things. But like those two stories really stuck out to me of um, it would be easy, I think, to be a person in Toni Morrison's position and like make journalists uncomfortable or be like she had quite a presence and she certainly would have been entitled to be imperious if she had wanted to be Mm -hmm. but it sounds like she was just so warm and generous and uh, free with sharing her perspective and her wisdom and just so inspiring so inspiring i'm gonna be a collector of quotes now yes (laughs) (laughs) i got my highlighter I'm ready to learn. I'm ready to be taken to church. Oh, I should send you a picture of some of the pages in Sula where like I've read it seven times with seven different colors of pen. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) So Toni Morrison, fare thee well. Rest in Um, power. Yes. We made it through this segment without crying. I'm amazed, but I feel like we probably both got it all out yesterday. I was like, (laughs) I got to get it out. I can't be a mess on this podcast tomorrow. I know. All right. And I'm glad that we were in it together, yes. Sharifa. Thank you for this is a hard week to just pop up as a guest on this podcast. <laughs> this was perfect though. I feel like uh I think so too. I had a therapy session. So thank you too. <laughs> Great. Let's take a quick break for our first sponsor. Oh Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. 
it kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Kalyan Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Okay, now into news of the week or of other weeks. First, just a quick follow-up and correction. A couple weeks back when Jeff and I were talking about Amazon acquisitions and what was going on with the Dean Koontz deal, we were speculating of like, who's next? Maybe they could get someone like Patricia Cornwell. Um, We have been corrected that, in fact, last year they did acquire Patricia Cornwell for a series of novels with the imprint Thomas and Mercer. And the first one comes out later this year. And in fact, we talked about that on the show when it happened and we both just forgot. Mm -hmm. Um, So thank you to... (laughs) to the listeners who reminded us of that Uh, news breaking this morning. I don't know that there's anything to say about it other than Elliott advisors has completed its purchase of Barnes and Noble. So the acquisition is complete. Um, More than 81% of Barnes and Noble's shares were tendered to Elliott advisors by the deadline yesterday. August 6th. Um, so now Barnes and Noble is a private company controlled by a private equity firm. And uh, James Daunt, who's going to be the CEO, says this is a very good day for book selling. Barnes and Noble is the greatest of all bookstore names and will now benefit from the support of an owner committed to physical book selling. With investment and concentration on the core principles of good book selling, the prospects of this extraordinary company are bright. Uh, so Good luck, Barnes & Noble. (laughs) We certainly hope to see your efforts succeed for a change. This is one of those stories where I think nobody is, people are going to be like, oh, it's so insider, it's so businessy, but people have some strong feelings about what's going to happen to Barnes & Noble, which is totally understandable because Barnes & Noble, for a lot of people in a lot of places, is their one bookshop. So Mm -hmm. I'm sure they're concerned about where it's going to be taken And I'm curious to see how they're going to try to transform it to become something that is shinier, bigger, and better. (laughs) Quote. (laughs) I wondered which one of us was going to have to say that. (laughs) I couldn't wait. I was like, but what does that mean? Like, in my head, I picture this very sterile place, uh, but... It might just be like, I don't know, maybe they're going to try to make it look like the Amazon storefronts or Mm. like this could be taken in so many directions. It remains to be seen, but. Yeah, he says uh, Barnes & Noble needs money. People want to shop in places that look modern, clean and inviting. The Barnes & Noble stores look tired and need a little Botox. (laughs) (laughs) So. Yeah. I I am. You're right. Everyone has a feeling about what could happen here. And since nothing has happened, we're deep into the land of speculation. Yes. Um, and I think a lot of it is kind of anxiety fueled speculation for the reasons that you were listing. If people feel very connected to Barnes and Noble as their bookstore, I know I have a lot of memories connected to very specific Barnes and Noble stores, um, but publishing in general, like it's good for publishing in general, especially as regards being able to compete against Amazon for yeah. Barnes and Noble to continue to exist. Um, so there's just a lot that could happen there. I, I am encouraged by Don's statement about being committed to physical book selling and the core principles of good book selling. Um, over the last couple of years, we've seen Barnes and Noble 
undertake many experiments that strayed, I think, from that core of good book selling and tried all kinds of other things to get people in the door and to make money. And those did not work. So it makes sense to try to come back to what the company is about, um, to what customers look to Barnes & Noble for and try to sort of have a return to form, maybe with a little bit of a facelift. I'm also very curious about what these post-Botox Barnes and Nobles are going to look like. I'm definitely going to find one. If they do it in the Barnes and Noble around the Portland area, I'm definitely going to go in there and check it out. But it's it's probably going to be a little while coming. Yeah. I wonder when we'll see these new versions of the stores become available or like if it will be small changes over time or will they be closing stores temporarily to do renovations? Like many, many questions, very few answers Yeah, at this point, but we're all certainly rooting for this to be successful. Yep. All right. Well, in other follow-up news, and oh. this is from the department. Yeah. Just make some noises. <laughs> from the department of unsatisfying conclusions to stories we've been following for a long time. Paul Doerr, who is the Iowa man who checked out some LGBTQ LGBTQ themed books at an Iowa library last year and burned them on video unapologetically and then was, you know, taken to court over it. Um, That court case has concluded and, he is going to be sentenced to a $35 fine plus a 35% surcharge for court costs as his penalty. He faced up to 30 days in jail, but will not have to serve any jail time. And I found this interesting. Prosecutors sought the maximum fine for his literary destruction crusade. And it was only the maximum possible fine was only $625. I cannot believe this. Oh my goodness. I'm making a lot of faces over here because when I saw this news this morning, I I almost couldn't believe it. I thought it was a mistake because I, as a child, bringing back overdue books had to pay more than this person did <laughs> right? for totally destroying them. Like, And just the smugness mm-hmm. of this person and having no remorse whatsoever is just infuriating. Like it's unsurprising. It's infuriating. It's infuriating that the judge sentenced him to this ridiculous fine. Like this is the penalty. How can somebody have a straight face? But yeah, I'm not surprised, I guess. I guess not. It's, unsurprising and very disappointing. Um, If you've ever had to replace a library book, which at least one of us on this podcast has, (laughs) they cost more than just the list price of the book because libraries, well, there are are real reasons, but it's not worth getting into now. And the $35 fine wouldn't even cover just the retail cost of the four books that he destroyed. So this $35, like this is almost worse than no fine at all, I think. Yeah. It's it's insulting that it doesn't cover the cost of the books. There's no real penalty involved here for destruction of public property, which is what library books are. And then when you add on all of the rhetoric around it and the fact that these were LGBTQ themed books and that this like if it's not straight out a hate crime, it verges on it. uh, It's all of this is unacceptable. 
Um, so the ACLU also predictably and undisappointingly yeah. is condemning the actions. Um, and the decision is based on saying that First Amendment doesn't apply to burning books you don't own. So burning public library books. Yeah, that's not your free uh, no. Like, How is that even an argument? He represented himself, by the way, and refused yeah. to testify. So he's just like... Yeah. yeah, he must have felt pretty confident that he was not going to have much issue with the courts in his hometown, which is also disappointing. Um, so here we are. He's paying a $35 fine. This is unacceptable. It's unacceptable. Um, you know, and there were a couple motions to dismiss the case. Like a few weeks ago, we were giving an update on the story saying that like there were motions to dismiss, but that those were ignored or refused. So he was actually going to go to court and that was encouraging, but he had to go to court for this result. Um, is not cool. It's so, very sorry. Yeah. Sorry to be the bearer of that news. Sharifa, tell me about Lisa Marie Presley. I have not thought about Lisa Marie Presley and Michael <laughs> Jackson in a very long time. Like, because why would you at, want to? Looking at this story, just like, I was like, oh my goodness, I'm flashing back. I'm suddenly way back when, what was it in the 90s? Oh, yeah. So, Mm-hmm. Here's what's happening. <laughs> Lisa Marie Presley is planning a tell-all book with what are described as shocking revelations about Michael Jackson and some things about her father, Elvis Presley, that people do not know. And of course, both of these people are huge icons of music, but Michael Jackson also recently had that documentary come out Um, leaving Neverland that sort of details Michael Jackson's alleged sexual abuse of children. So Mm -hmm. that's happening. And when I, when I first encountered this headline of the first thing I think about is like, I question like, Oh, well, what's the timing about um, why is this happening? I'd forgotten about Mm -hmm. leaving Neverland. I don't know if that's the reason she's putting this book out now and what it's actually going to be about. Um, But she's already landed a massive book deal to spill the deets. Three million dollars. I cannot even wrap my head around it, but I suppose that just comes with the territory of talking about, like, major icons. People are going to... My theory, at least, is that people are definitely going to buy this book because Mm. there are a lot of people who are either Elvis fans or Michael Jackson fans or just like to, you know, get the dirt um, on really historical figures in pop culture. So I'm curious. I am probably not going to read it myself, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm sure I'll hear all about it. Because people are going to be recapping this all across the internet once it's actually released. But I remember the big commotion about Michael Jackson and Lisa Marie Mm -hmm. getting married. And this is kind of where I figured out as a young person the concept of like publicity and publicity stunts and things like that Uh, uh because it felt I was like I don't understand these people don't seem like 
you know, <laughs> they like each yeah. other. <laughs> and we're, you and I are the same age. So we were like 12 when this yeah. first started happening. <laughs> so it was a, I feel like it was a pretty big part, like all of his relationships. And in my head also, I'm wondering, like, it's not hard to imagine a, a Michael Jackson relationship that comes with a NDA with a non-disclosure agreement. Oh, like, for real. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if that had anything to do with like why she didn't come out with this earlier or why she's doing it now or what she's allowed to say or if that even happened at all because who knows. Yeah, it's going to be super interesting and I think it could go a couple ways. Like you're absolutely right that as soon as the book comes out, the recaps are going to be everywhere. Mm-hmm. And if it's like, if it's, I don't even want to say juicy because there's so much gross stuff around his life story or allegedly gross stuff that yeah, I don't think that there's the, this is not like a, you know, just finding out the juicy gossip about a celebrity. There's like some, there's something deeper here. And I think that if she, if she addresses the allegations and if there is a new perspective to them, because the only other time in this piece we're looking at, the only other time that she's ever addressed the allegations against him was in 1995 in an interview with Diane Sawyer. And she said, I know that he's not like that. So if that's still the party line, this book is going to be tough. Um, And I think it would be, yeah, it's an, it's an interesting choice and in very bad taste to if that was the direction that she would were to take um to follow up all of the essentially public testimony that we've had from uh, people who claim to be victims of Michael Jackson's from the people who went on the record in the documentary like if this is somehow an exoneration or intended to be an exoneration of him oh, that's boy. not i don't think that's going to go over well um if it is a re-examination or a revelation of a new perspective um, or of maybe recasting like one of the things pretty consistently in interviews with people who knew him at the time was like sort of re-examining things that they didn't think were that strange but that now in in light of more information they can you know go back and put it through a new lens and perhaps she's doing that um it would be i mean i'm just gonna hope that it's that because I can't I'll, I'll be very upset about a publisher validating an attempt to exonerate him with a three million dollar book deal um so let's hope it is not that yeah. but this is really something I'm not sure that I would market it as a shocking tell-all if I were trying to make a serious case about um some of the things that he's accused of having done but who knows I know that's the thing about marketing sometimes is people will spin things the way they think are going to sell books. But Mm -hmm. I hope that we are at a time like there have been so many news stories and there's been so many, so much pushback against, you know, people who are kind of using things like, you know, sexual assault and, who are pushing back against using that, like spinning that in ways that are gross. And I feel like there's no way you can do that. And like as a publisher support this book. Yeah. In a a gross way without getting a lot of outcry. So yeah, it would be shockingly tone deaf. Yeah. For real. So 
I'm curious and also, yeah. ugh. I know. I feel like I'll be reading the first recaps, like, with my hands over my face. Yeah, <laughs> like, through the fingers. Peeking through the fingers, like, what is this going to be? Um, yeah, just get ready So to that is a thing. That. Yeah, that's a thing that's happening in the world is Lisa Marie Presley is getting $3 million to write a memoir. Yeah. Well, before we move on, let's take a break for our next sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal, join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine, partying hard is what it takes, but with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the critic Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for We Deserve Monuments, and We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023, so suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated. So Negative Space by Jillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls. At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student, but how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative Space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't, and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic focused. And it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Jillian Linden. And thanks again to W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode. All right, sort of continuing down the line of publishing's handling of allegations of misbehavior. Um, it came out this week that Tim Tingle, who is an author and storyteller, has a forthcoming or had a forthcoming middle grade book called Doc and the Detective, and it is being pulled from publication by Scholastic. It was supposed to be published this October. Um, Scholastic is not commenting further, but the cancellation comes just a few weeks after two booksellers who attended the ABA's Children's Institute, which took place in Pittsburgh in June, said that uh, at a party one night at Children's Institute, Tingle interrupted their conversation, touched them on the hands and knees, and then patted both of them on the head. Um, that is particularly egregious in this case because one of the booksellers has a permanently implanted medical device in her head. She was wearing a hat. Um, he could not have known that it was there when he touched her without permission, and that could have been 
damaging additionally. So the booksellers made these allegations and um, Scholastic pulled the publication of the title. Um, Tingle wrote an email to Publishers Weekly, that's where we're getting this news, saying Scholastic and I have reached a mutual agreement that the rights to Doc and the Detective will be returned to me and I have let them know that the allegations made against me are untrue. Um, So that is where that is. Um, I think this is an interesting evolution in a publishing response to something that's like, it's not quite a me too story. Like this is not a story about sexual misconduct or assault. Um, When one of the booksellers, Alicia Michielli, who's from Talking Leaves Books in Buffalo, um, objected at the time that this was happening. She told him to his face it was unacceptable. Um, Tingle apparently responded saying, I'm not trying to do a Joe Biden here. And she said, you just did exactly a Joe Biden. Yeah. Um, you know, sort of uninvited, unwelcome, physical touching, um, whether it's sexual or not. Um, so it's interesting to me to see publishing take this seriously, especially when the responses to um, various Me Too allegations and to different authors have, it, it's really varied. Like some people have lost their book deals. Um, some people have gotten to continue being the chair of the Pulitzer Prize Committee. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <laughs> so there's that. Um, It's also worth mentioning that Tingle is a member of the Choctaw Nation and um, Native American writers are underrepresented everywhere, especially in children's books. Um, So like not to we don't know anything about how Scholastic made this this decision and what other kinds of allegations they've had. But it's worth mentioning that some authors have gotten out of allegations of much more egregious contact of a sexual nature and that tingle is that this is the response to a person who happens to be a native american not to say that i don't think you should have consequences you don't touch people who have not approved for you to touch them Um, but there's a lot to unpack in this one yeah i remember when stories were coming out um particularly in the children's book world And it just felt like, and this was, you know, it doesn't feel like it was necessarily that long ago, but I remember there was a lot of resistance from publishers um, to do anything about it. And there were definitely some big name authors on those Mm -hmm. lists and having allegations against them and... You know, there's still like it took forever for publishers. It took almost an overwhelming amount of of evidence and of allegations for them to do anything about it. So, yeah, I agree that that there's a lot to unpack here. Um, and it's always difficult, you know, when this is coming from you. These stories are coming from somebody from a marginalized community. Um, so I. I just feel like this is such a disappointing story. Yeah, I think the it's worth noting that most of the stories that we've seen publicly, at least, that are Me Too or Me Too adjacent in publishing are not stories about things that have happened like in boardrooms or in publisher meetings, which those things I'm sure happen. And I personally know some of those stories, but more of the stories are things that come out of social events, of especially conferences. Literary conferences seem to be rife with this kind of thing, um, with authors who are being courted um, at Children's Institute, which is like Winter Institute um, that happens once a year. 
publishers help throw it with the ABA and they use that event as a, an opportunity to showcase upcoming books, to try to get booksellers to stock them and to basically like put their authors on parade. And it's a real like wine and dine situation of like, look how lovely these authors are. Don't you want to sell their books? Don't you want to invite them to give events at your store? And there's a lot of schmoozing, which does lend itself both to like, you know, all kinds of awkward social interactions and situations in which men of a certain age who are used to being able to interact with younger women in particular ways that are no longer socially acceptable, I think are going to be learning that the hard way. Um, I'm encouraged to see a publisher take that seriously um, and address it. I think there's going to be a lot more of this kind of thing. Yeah. I wonder if the ABA has like guidelines that go out like community guidelines about, Mm -hmm. you know, just to give people an education about what is and isn't acceptable and appropriate behavior, whether they're like, you know, on the conference floor or if they're at Mm -hmm. these after parties. Um, Because I wonder if that would help some in making this less frequent, especially with, as you said, like some people who've been in the business for a long time and maybe have very dated concepts of what is and isn't acceptable, (laughs) like touching strangers without their permission. Um, So that'll be interesting. Like I haven't necessarily heard about whether or not they do have guidelines and whether they go out to people who they know are attending their conferences and might be at these after parties. Yeah, I don't know about that either. And it seems like those kinds of guidelines have really just emerged in the last few years. Like the first time I saw them was maybe for Comic-Cons yeah. where they were po- like there had been stories about people being like stalked and touched or assaulted at Comic-Cons and they were posting like as you entered Javits, it was like, don't take pictures of people without their permission. Don't touch people without their permission. Like if someone touches you, here's who to report it to. Um, yeah. We did some research around that for Book Riot Live events and for setting those. Like, I think that's a great point that if you're running an event like this in whatever industry, but publishing because you're listening to this podcast, setting some rules from the get-go about how humans interact with each other in your spaces and then also how they can handle violations of that would be great. Yeah, I totally agree. It doesn't hurt, that's for sure. So Right. <laughs> yeah, those are you're never sad that you had rules in no. place for some, for something. Like it's a bare minimum. Like um, we just have a few minutes left, so let's hit one kind of weird news story and then we'll get out on a hero of the week. There's a long piece this week from the or actually it came out in May, but somehow it just got surfaced from the New York Times public or from the New York Public Library's blog that the sort of short and sweet version is they've done a bunch of data mining over at the NYPL and they have discovered that about 80% of the books that were published between 1923 and 1964 should be in the public domain right now because their copyrights were never renewed. Typically it's, um, I think like a hundred ish years from publication before a book goes into public domain, but you have to renew the copyrights along the way. And apparently like a bunch of publishers just didn't have their calendar reminder set. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
So super interesting. I don't know if anything cool is going to come out of this or if there's just like a bunch of publishers scrambling to renew things. If you can even renew a copyright after you have failed to renew it um, or if things are just in the public domain by default at this point. But there's a long read here from the NYPL's blog if you want to get into the details of that. Lots of interesting books published between 1923 and 1964. So I know. maybe <laughs> just what an interesting <laughs> oversight. How do you drop the ball on something like that? I mean, I guess when it's like so far in the distance, some of these books are so much older. Yeah. People transition out of their jobs. Like, I don't even know the process for this. It's so fascinating. I don't either. If you work for a publisher and you do know how these things are supposed to be kept track of, I would love to know. You can email us, podcast at bookriot.com. And our hero of the week this this week, this is a nice story. I like to end on these, especially in a sad week. Our hero of the week is a man named Larry Abrams. He is from New Jersey, and he has donated more than... 10,000 books. He is, uh, I believe, a teacher. He's giving the books away to teachers. That's it. Um, So far, he's donated 10,000 books plus another 6,000 that were stashed away in a different place. Um, And they had been stored in his 1,000 square foot space in an office park. Um, There's also been a $7,000 donation to the Gloucester County. Uh, And he's giving all of these books away to 100 teachers next month as part of Book Smiles, which is a nonprofit that he started two years ago. The goal is then for the teachers to give the books away to children who don't have any. So he's functionally set up like a bookstore for teachers where all the books are free. They can take the books, they give them to their students, everybody wins. Uh, Lots of interesting ways that the community has been contributing to this. Um, and he has a new location, if you're in that area, um, on Old Cuthbert Road near Route 70 and the Marlcrest Road. There's going to be a bin out in front to drop off book donations at any time. So if you've got, if you're around there in Jersey and you want to, uh, the Cherry Hill neighborhood, if you want to donate your books, you can do that as well. So hats off, Larry Abrams. Hats Thank you for off. being our hero of the week. So nice to end with that. Yeah. Well, Sharifa, thank you for joining me this week. I feel like we really ran the emotional gamut. We really did. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I was on a roller coaster ride, but in a good way. (laughs) Well, I'm glad. Uh, Notes for this show with links to all of the news pieces that we've discussed will be available at bookriot.com slash listen. Again, if you have feedback, if you know some things about how book copyrights get updated, anything along those lines, shoot us an email podcast at bookriot.com along with ideas for future book nerd movie hour episodes. We are excited to get into those. And in the meantime, have a great week. Thanks, Sharifa.